Welcome to the Republican Professor. This afternoon, we have with us Lance Walnow Sr. And joining us from Texas, we have Curtis. And uh, I'm in California, and it's actually hot. I've been saying it's frozen, but it's warm out there. Um, and Lance, you're in Texas too, right? I'm in Dallas, which right now is pollen central and yeah. <laughs> uh, it's allergy central. I just did a, I just did a broadcast and in the middle of it, I was going like this and grabbing Kleenex and, and having to wipe my nose. Oh. It, was, it was a totally unprofessional moment because the <laughs> pollen is intense. Okay. Is. Well, we'll believe that story. Uh, but could you wear a mask just for the rest of this interview? Just so we feel safe. <laughs> yes. We well, I'm wearing make, a <laughs> make everybody feel safe about everything. Yeah, I'm in Dallas too. And I don't want to get sick. I, I appreciate that. You, you know, I, I did a broadcast last night with Dennis Prager. So we were on this, oh, cool. this news thing. Oh, and, that is awesome. And I ran into him at an airport coming from uh, one of one of the rallies that we do, one of our, our awakening rallies, we call them. And uh, he wasn't wearing a mask going through the airport. And it was it was like <laughs> San Diego. And I thought that was such a, a an act of defiance. And but it was Dennis Prager. And I'm walking around, you know, Mr. Reformer here taking on the Great Awakening. And I got my whole team and we were all masked up. And I felt so I said, uh, I, so I went up to him and I asked him, you know, talk to him. And he said his philosophy, he says, I'll wear my mask. When I go through TSA, I'm not a fool, I want to go through TSA. And when I'm on the plane, but the rest of the time, I do not wear a mask and I encourage everyone else who loves liberty to not conform. And so his courage as an Orthodox Jew convicted my Pentecostal soul to its roots. And I said, I'm supposed to be the bold one. And I started, I, so I told him that last night because and he went, he wanted me to, he said, would you bring that up on the air? I want to tell everyone that story because he believes that more people need to be courageous on expressing yeah. their civil liberties and every place that they can do so. Absolutely. That was a pretty good impression of him too. You sounded like impression. him. Yeah. <laughs> that was uncanny. Well, Lance, uh, I, I, I'd like to start off with a warm anecdote. My, I'll start off with a warm anecdote about your son, which is how I got to know you eventually teaching at That's Pepperdine true. university. I think it was an introduction to philosophy class. It was probably in 2009. I, I want to say. Um, so over, over 10 years ago, well, 13 years ago, I guess now, yes, I had a kid named Lance wall now in my class and just a delightful guy. He was, he's extremely talented. Uh, he would make up these rap songs and he could rap. Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he laughed at all my jokes, which is the, the easiest way to tell if someone is just dialed in and squared away. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, he seemed to have a, an intact spiritual life. And uh, so we were friends on Facebook for many years. And then I saw uh, a connection on Facebook and I was like, wait, I thought I was already friends with Lance. <laughs> and then it was like his dad, his, his dad had the same name and been great to have be connected to you. And then over the years, we've just uh, started talking more and more about politics and getting uh on the same page on politics and and integrating that with the with our spirituality the true spirituality christian faith and uh yeah and, and from my perspective let me tell you what happened my son calls yeah, me okay. and says dad you'd really like this professor i got 
you know, and uh, and uh, I said, well, tell me about him. He said, well, he says it's really interesting stuff. And and he and he's intriguing because he allows the students to kind of debate and make and he forces the students to think through their ideas. And in this sense, he's different than a lot of professors. He wants them to to engage the, the, the process. And so then he started sending me quotes from your Facebook posts. And he was he was pasting them and sending them to me. Now, when you got a when you got a child that's that interested in what a teacher is saying, I mean, I'm celebrating it. Now, you could have been done doing Marvel comics, and I would have been like, "Look, a teacher's got my kid engaged." <laughs> but but you were saying some really important things, and uh, yeah. and I'm glad that you're doing the Republican Professor podcast, and more people need to be hearing um, from a professor because there's a tremendous amount. I'm perhaps, perhaps I know you, I'm your guest, but I would be asking you this if you're on my podcast. And I'd like to know um, it's it's there is a tremendous pressure to conform yes. on these campuses. But I would have thought the intellectual life of a professor would be more vigorous in pushing back on conformity. Is it, it what what is the story of a professor? Do you find that the professors don't really believe their philosophies about life or they're willing to accommodate them to the pressure of a career tracker what goes on because you didn't you kind of rebelled a little bit but i would expect that from you uh, because you for you you're like a jordan peterson in the sense that you're not just teaching to make a living you're teaching out of the essence of what you believe and that is too important to compromise but how do you explain the other professors that's uh I really love how you turned that around and started interviewing me. That was masterful. I love that. I'm going to take <laughs> notes on that. Hold on a sec. Let me, how, how to turn around. Um, that's, I've puzzled about that myself. And I think like a lot of things, it's a little complicated, but I think that being a professor is a pretty good gig. If you can get it. I mean, you work really hard. You have the summers off allegedly. And you know, it's about as close to being rich as possible because the rich people have the summers off too. That's, that's what that's. And you have all the holidays off. You have all there. You have Christmas off. Um, you have, uh, they don't call it Christmas. They don't admit it. It's Christmas. They don't, they don't admit that it's uh, Easter break anymore. Can't say that, but, but they have all the holidays off and, and there's a security there and the security, mm -hmm. once you get a taste of it, is delicious and there's a fear i think of not fitting in i think there's a fear of not fitting in anyway and i i don't know how much credit i can really take for being bold and courageous because in some sense i didn't have tenure so my back was against the wall anyway and so i thought well i might as well go down in flames <laughs> I, I might I might, what I might as well do is do something with my life. And I'm not just going to go through the motions of fitting in. And tenure is really about fitting in. Um, there's, a, there's a process you go through, which is really just gleaning people that don't fit in. Uh, that's what peer review is. I mean, you can even hear it in peer review. Did you get your article published in peer review? So who are your peers? Well, they're the ones that are still around after they, the other people were cut out for whatever reason for not fitting in. So it's very conformist. The academic life is extremely conformist. Now, there are people that don't 
fit in, uh, don't conform like Jordan Peterson. He had tenure though. So he had a bit more security and there are some other people like that. Um, we had John Yu on the podcast. John Yu's taught at University of California, Berkeley for almost 30 years. And uh, he proudly walks around <laughs> having served in the Bush administration and having uh, written this book on Trump and presidential power, which is a great book, by the way. Um, so, but wow. okay, now, now back to you though. Like, tell yes. us about, for people that are following me, but they don't really know who you are, um, you have kind of an accent. It seems like you, you're from the East somewhere. Yes, the Northeast. It's the, it's a New York accent, actually, and it can get thicker depending on whether I'm talking to someone from New York or not. It's a <laughs> subliminal thing. And it, it uh, and if they're Jewish, uh, it really be, I'd be sound like Jackie Mason. I start to become Jackie Mason gradually by degrees because my mother's from Brooklyn. My father's got a Jewish background. He's his his family had rabbis. And then he had uh, his father had uh, married a, a shiksa, married a Gentile and changed his name and tried to cover his past. And my dad did the same thing, married a Gentile and changed his name. So uh, so it was uh, kind of uh, so I have a little bit of the Jewish New York in me. It's in my bloodline. And uh, that's that's where the accent, that's where the fast pace comes from, too. I tend to talk faster than the folks from the South. Um, they're a little bit more measured yes. and steady and bless your heart. And but I've got that got that New York urgency, because if you don't move, you get run over. That's <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting thing about you. It seems like a lot of people in like Texas like you and in other parts like that, like typically conservative areas, I guess. I don't know how you describe it, but you don't seem to talk like. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't talk. Like, so I don't funny. talk like that. No, I don't. And my dad was a southerner, too, which is kind of funny because he's from Richmond, Virginia. He never lost the southern drawl. Oh, cool. But but he raised me in Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania is kind of like the, the bland accent, like Ohio. There's no distinctiveness to a Pennsylvania accent that I could find unless you're Amish. And so the, uh, so I, I kind of was, I was, I ra was raised where they speak North East. And your dad, I remember being at an event, uh, during the summer of 2018 and you were a little late coming to that because I think you had a funeral to go to. Yes, yes. He died at 99 years mm -hmm. of age. As a matter of fact, that's correct. I, I just come from the funeral to come to see to, to, for that event. 99 mm -hmm. years of age. And um, but uh, but he was cognitively sharp all the way to the end. And he seemed so like a he, really special guy. I mean, oh, he was. I mean, yeah, he yeah. was. I mean, I must, I, and he, I would have uh, he would have a cigar. I would have my fellowship with him because he was the only guy in the Chandler Hall nursing home who assisted living because he never needed needed to have uh, anything else. But it was kind of they, they cooked for him. They cleaned his room. He liked it. And he was the only guy in 99 who actually had a, a Lincoln Continental in the driveway. <laughs> and he went out there to have a cigar and to play music. And he'd open wow. up the doors for all the other uh, he called them the inmates. But they were the other people that were <laughs> staying there. That's awesome. And they'd sit out front and they rock and he'd be entertaining him like a DJ. He put on Frank Sinatra, some swing music. He'd open up the Wall Street Journal, put a cigar in his mouth and call me and quiz me about my uh, staying up to date with current events. So he's the one that shamed me into reading outside the Bible because I became 
uh, Bible-obsessed when I started realizing that spiritual things were such a priority that I wanted to dedicate myself. So I have a massive library. It's all on revival and theology and Christian stuff. But then he got me he started challenging me about broadening mm. my world. So I understood economics and political theory. Right. And uh, he shamed me into uh, the realization that my real mission in life is trying to uh, is trying to interpret what's going on in the world so that Christians can understand it. That's a large part of my audience mm -hmm. is I got a million people right now. Listen, my, my podcast I just found out is over 750,000 downloads a month. What's funny is wow. I am I am it, being a being an internet celebrity is a new phenomena. So if you mm. go somewhere like a conference, they'll know me at the event I go to, and everybody will want selfies. And I leave there and I step into anonymity because nobody at Waffle House <laughs> gives a rip who I am. But if I <laughs> at the event I can't get a meal in privacy, but if I leave it and go to the hotel. Everyone leaves me alone. It's kind of a weird kind of a world. It's like the best of both worlds. <laughs> it is. It's the very best of both worlds. I said it to a friend of mine who was driving me because we couldn't walk down a hallway at an event without being stopped. But then the moment we got to the airport, we were left alone. And I said, this is the way it ought to be. So you, <laughs> right. You're a celebrity in, their, in your metaverse. But when you come out of it, you're back to normal. <laughs> Thank you, free market. Yeah, <laughs> Lance, what I what I love about having connected with you on Facebook these many years is that I see your uh, Facebook lives that you do in the middle of the night <laughs> and I'm oh, never I'm never live. I always see it at, at later, but you have this massive library at home. You obviously love books. Where did you get your love of books from? Oh, man, I, I got a love of books. I All I can say is I used to go to the Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, because I tried to get into the, the Lancaster Bible College. Now, I ended up with a degree from, you know, ORU and then from some other, I went to some other universities. But yeah. the, but when I was trying to get into Bible college, I was a bit naive. I didn't know that, for instance, people that are of a charismatic orientation would be rejected by a fundamentalist Bible school. So mm -hmm. I kept on picking the wrong Bible colleges and I was getting rejected because I would write a little essay about my spiritual journey. And in it, I would be locating about how I, you know, and discovered, uh, you know, Pentecostal. I was, Derek Prince was one of my mentors, who was a Cambridge scholar, but he was a Pentecostal and he was an aficionado of the deliverance ministry. And he, he would talk about casting out of demons and he would speak from the Greek and the Latin and explain exousia and authority. <laughs> and I loved listening to Derek Prince. And I just, I didn't have the discretion to edit my, my essays and I got rejected. And I thought, oh. you know what, this is really affecting my psyche. I mean, I, I maybe I'm not, mm -hmm. maybe I'm not meant to go to seminary. So I went to Princeton theological seminary. When the students went, I went but I went to the library, the Spears library, and I had access. They thought I was a student, I think, because I had <laughs> access to all the original documents the library has from 1830, 1820, 1840, wow. the original Finney systematic theology. And I would take the Whoa. books out and pour it over them. And, uh, and Daubigny's History of the Reformation and great classics. And I read them in their original in the original documents, which were not edited. And they had more in them. The editors take stuff out. And uh, so I, I, I developed a love of literature right around then and began acquiring and accumulating books of interest. Yeah, you do have a huge library. Every time I look at it, I try to pick out volumes I might know or whatever. 
Oh, and- it's eclectic. It's eclectic. Now it's all over the place. I had a mentor, yeah. uh, Lucas. I had a mentor named Bill McGrain, who was uh, who was a uh, he, he taught psychology. And when I was in ministry, I found that a lot of the problems that people had were related to an area that is to this day it's still kind of dubious, but it had to do with uh, you know emotional trauma and psychological trauma. And I found that there was a great deal of counseling I was doing where I was going to Dr. Dobson and Henry Cloud and Merneth Minor. I was going to the Christian psychologist to explain boundaries and, you know, phases of life, et cetera. So I met, I hooked up with this guy who was a brilliant mentor and he was, his name was Bill McGrain. He had an institute in, in, in um, Cincinnati. And he talked about the power of, and he introduced me to some of the therapy concepts, like the power of unconditional uh, acceptance uh, from a uh, uh, from a from a from an analyst point of view, building a rapport with a client to create an environment where they felt safe enough to be able to. And so I studied, I listened to him, and when he died, he had a great imp- impact on me because he had a great library, and his son didn't want it. And oh, when he died, wow. I said to I said to him, I said, Bill, what are you going to do with that? He goes, I don't know, heck, throw it away or oh, give it away. You want it? I go, gosh. my gosh, wow. this was your dad's treasure. I mean, wow. you know, wow. I said, so I bought that library that you see wasn't yeah. all mine. It's Bill McGrain's library. I said, you can't wow. just throw it out or give it to Goodwill because wow. he had all his notes in it and he had, you know, written, wrote notes in it. So it's like it's like a great thinker's library. And I thought, what a waste. So I bought it. And it obviously it created thousands of volumes to my own copious library. Now, when you were making that decision to save that library, would you, when you look back on that, do you feel like that was the spirits leading or how do you characterize it? Is this, is this just your personal predilection to books? Uh, was it just ingrained in you by your parents? Is it genetic? What do you think the, cause a lot well, no, of people I, would just not go buy a library like that. <laughs> No, no. But especially I, like, were you charismatic at this time? And what, what I, I was, but, but, but okay. and this is, this is, and I'm, I'm trying to weigh uh, what I should say, because depending on your audience, you know, they might not have a paradigm for this, but what the heck, we'll just say it. Let it, let it fly. When, okay. when uh, my, both my brothers are professors and, uh, and, and, and so I was the dumb sheep in the family. I got one brother who's at Carnegie Mellon. He's an artificial intelligence contractor with the government. He's embarrassed by me because he had to go through several intelligence briefings at the Pentagon to make sure that he didn't agree with anything I was saying. Oh, my gosh. He told told me that. He said, you are such a nuisance for me with my career. We all know exactly (laughs) what you're talking about, and we appreciate you talking around that. Yeah, Yeah. it just makes me laugh. Anyway, anyway, so, so he's helping with artificial intelligence at the Defense Department, and it's a professor got another brother who's a professor of college in new jersey centenary college where he does fine arts and runs the playhouse there me i was the uh i preferred acting my idea was i just wanted to do stand-up comedy <laughs> that was my aspiration <laughs> That's actually and I was, hard work. It's actually which hard is work. very. Hey, listen, yeah. it takes a certain amount of uh, intelligence to be yes. able to deliver a good joke. Oh, I found out, yeah. Yeah. and so a willingness I, to take rejection over. Oh, and over it's, again. it's 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 a courageous enterprise. So, yeah. uh, so I was on my way to. And my, so my dad was a little disappointed because he had two two brilliant kids and he had one, and so he basically would tell me, "Well, and it was so condescending. He didn't mean it, but he said, well, not everyone's college material, son. It's like <laughs> college material. It's like some kind of sub." par you know sub specimen i've got here for a your, middle your child. dad's your dad said that 
Yeah, he did. So Not everyone's cigar, cigar smoking Cadillac guy. He, oh, yeah. Was he well, a college well, guy or what? Well, he? my God, he had, he had two degrees. He had a law okay. degree and an engineering degree. And, oh, and, and he's wow. running acquisitions and mergers for an oil company. So ah, obviously okay. he's gotcha. a, yeah. but but he wasn't in the arts and he certainly wasn't in religion. And right. so he, he so I um, I basically when when I went off, he put me in a military school because he felt I needed structure and discipline. And so I was sent to a military academy and I, and I spent my high school years in a mili- in, in what was like Lord of the Flies. Uh, oh, it was man. a Valley Forge Military Academy. Donald Trump went to New York Military Academy. We used to compete with them. And uh, I, in military school, I was so miserable that it drove me to Jesus. I was so unhappy. Um, wow. I wasn't suicidal because I wasn't that desperate, but uh, I didn't like it. And I can remember praying at uh, his, uh, my, my mom was Catholic. My dad took me to Episcopal church till I found out that he was Jewish. And, and so I, and I would pray, I said, God, if there is a God, would you reveal yourself, manifest yourself? Just, just I'm open. And I prayed that every night because I could, I felt like I had, I, I felt desperate that I needed something that would help me in that, uh, in that environment to sort out life. And uh, a campus, a weird thing happened. Campuses have gates of access, like West Point. It's a large campus. And there are guards at every gate. And there are guns. We had rifles. They weren't loaded, but we had rifles. That's the next and, topic I was going to bring up. Did you shoot guns? <laughs> yeah, did we shoot guns? Yes, we did. But awesome. they, we, had, we had armed guards. And on one particular night around December 4th, I think it was, 1973, I was on my way back to my barracks. And there was a, a kid with long hair and jeans, two kids with long hair standing outside my barracks. And I was stunned because civilians weren't on an all male academy that, you know, is locked up like that. And so I said, hey, how'd you get here? And they said, we just walked on the campus. That meant they had to have they had to have been a God divine appointment because they walked past guards who didn't stop them, which doesn't make sense. Or a guard was not at the post, which is a particularly serious crime as a cadet, because you could lose all kinds of privileges for not showing up at guard duty. We took that stuff fanatically serious. So I said, wow. I said, well, you got to get out of here. I said, but what are you doing? And I grabbed the pamphlet out of his hand and it was a four spiritual laws thing. And I said, wait a second, are you like a religious fanatic or something? And he said, uh, not necessarily. I said, but you, you could do anything you want. It's Christmas and you could be dating and partying and out there with girls. And we're stuck in here like a, like a military compound. We get like two weeks off and for Christmas, we can't wait. We wait all year for two weeks and you choose to do this rather than be out there. I said, why? And so he opens it up and starts showing me the four spiritual laws. And I was kind of intrigued with what would drive somebody to be that devoted to a religion that that I never met a a fanatic like that. I was curious about his, why he did it. His buddy standing next to him, it's winter, there's snow on the ground. And uh, so Curtis, the students start packing snowballs and they're hurling them because I'm getting a little hostile crowd is showing up now because this is, Mm. this is like the orcs fine, you know, fresh meat. There's hobbits on the (laughs) campus. And so he's hurling, you know, snowballs at his poor buddy over here. who has got nobody talking to him. This guy is only protected because I'm talking to him. 
And while I'm talking to him out of the second floor window, Frank Fiermonte, I remember the guy, he was a buddy of mine, uh, a couple of real juvenile guys that were sent to the academy for discipline. I knew their dad sent them there because it was at a, a juvenile home. They took a bucket of water and dumped it on this evangelist. And so he's uh, soaking wet. And it's gosh. the dead of winter at night. Snow is coming down. A blizzard's starting. Wow. He's soaking wet. And he looks at me with absolute equanimity and poise and says, for 2,000 years, we've been drowned, crucified, stoned, burned alive. If you're willing to listen, I'm willing to stay here and talk to you. And in that moment, that sentence froze me because I'm in a leadership academy. They're training us to be leaders. We're all a bunch of A-type macho guys. Even if we're not, we act like we are. And I looked at him and I said, this young man who can only be one year older than me has more leadership and courage and, can, and devotion to an idea than any student or faculty member I met on this academy in two years. I have to find out what motivates him. So I said, I said, uh, I said, look, for your sake, I think I should help you get out of here. And he proceeded to show me the four spiritual laws. And uh, I let him finish because I knew he wasn't going to leave till he had evangelized. <laughs> and I said, okay. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, pray. I said, what? He said, pray. <laughs> and I'm looking over my shoulder and all the guys are like, what's gives wall? Now they're packing the ball. This is like, this is my peer group. And mm -hmm. it's like, one second, you want me to do what? He said, pray. I said, in front of all of them. And he said, yeah, in front of all of them. Now at that moment, I had a revelation because when you're raised in church, you think you're a Christian. It's like when I, when I first met Donald Trump, he thought he was a Christian. I mean, to this day, he's had at least three evangelists say sinners prayers with him. But I don't know that he ever thought he wasn't a Christian because you don't know you're not a Christian right. until you have a revelation that you're a sinner. You think you are because you go to church, you grow up Catholic, whatever. And at that moment, I had a revelation that I was a sinner and I had a revelation. Up till then, I thought I was probably a Christian. I just thought he was a fanatic. I thought he was an out-of-balance Christian, but I was kind of like, a, uh, okay, Christian. At that moment, I realized I was ashamed to be acknowledged with Jesus in front of my peer group. And it came, it hit me home like a sledgehammer that if I was ashamed of Jesus, I'm actually not a follower of Jesus. Mm. So I kind of surrendered. <laughs> I said, okay. So, and I prayed, I prayed a half a courageous prayer. And, and, but still was hardly courageous, but I prayed enough to get saved. Something happened in that moment. And, and I could feel something happen because I didn't expect, he didn't prepare me for an experience, but I felt this burst of warm um, life. I, actually, it's funny. I gave this testimony to Jordan Peterson, by the way, I told him it. He was kind of intrigued with what was going on. How could, was it psychological or physical? Did I feel something? I said, I'm telling you, Jordan, something happened. I felt like there was like a warm uh, explosion right in within my rib cage. I didn't know what happened. And I backed up and stared at the guy. And I said, what was that? Something had happened to me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to happen, but it did. I thank God it did. He looked at me and he said, Jesus just came into your heart. I said, you mean this is like literal something? I, you know, it sounds like <laughs> Jesus come into your heart. It's like, I got God in my heart, America in my heart, my wife, but it's like he actually something eternal life is something experienced, 
not just something subscribed to. So I was stunned. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, man, he said, you're going to need some help. I need to talk to you. I need to meet with you. I need to disciple you. I said, my friend, it's a miracle you got on this campus. It's a miracle you and I are talking. And if I'm not mistaken, it'll be a miracle if I ever see you again. And yeah. at that moment, he'll die of pneumonia. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah. If, not, if nothing else, the campus police came, grabbed him and his buddy and dragged them off the campus. And to this day, I've never seen him again. I've been all over the world. I preached the gospel in all kinds of places. Never saw the kid again. He doesn't even know. Well, I wonder whatever happened to that kid. But I took that four spiritual laws and I went back to my dorm and I went to my friends who I partied with. And I said, hey, man, check this out. And they all, of course, mocked it, rejected it and laughed at me. And I realized, oh, boy, it's going to be a lonely life. And it, and it was. It took me two or three years before I met another Christian like him. And that was that was uh, that was my journey to becoming a, a believer. OK, that's mm. good. That was probably what age were you? 16, 17. OK. And when you bought that library from that guy. Go back to the library because remember I asked you about yeah, was yeah, that yeah. a spiritual thing? What how when well, you okay, bought so, that so, library? Because so, it's not normal. So, so, ima so imagine libraries. this. Okay, so imagine this. I'm off to my first year of college. This is where I meet my first real Christian uh, okay. two years later. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I go off to Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. And um I'm not uh I'm kind of not really comfortable with what I'm doing because I'm not quite sure what, what kind of career direction I'm going in. I had an encounter with Jesus and I, and, and the, uh, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to a religion major, business major, what to do. And I discover at this point, uh, a promise in the Bible from James. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who will give to him without upbraiding. Now I was still a low performer academically. I, I mean, I could, I could, gra I graduated with honors from military school, but it was a lot of work. And I felt like I was always a little slower than other people. But when I, when I discovered that promise in the Bible, I prayed for wisdom. And all I could tell you is the moment I prayed for wisdom, I developed an insatiable thirst for knowledge. And as I prayed, I got a desire for knowledge. And I discovered it in the writings of great Christian myth mystics like Andrew Murray or F.B. Meyer. Mm. Or, uh, and I started reading biographies. And when I read them, I accumulated them on a bookshelf. And I started feeling a sense of, a, of, a, of, of like almost like a collector that, hey, these books are not just books. They're, every one of them has, had a, has, has etched something into my personality and my psyche. So I began to value physical books, which is why I can't understand electronic books for my other friends. It's like, why would you have a library? Amen, and I brother. wrote in them and I underlined in them and I highlighted them. And some of them I read three times because they, they meant something to me. And I gradually developed an appreciation for literature. I realized that I'm, I'm having a communicate, I'm having a friendship with an mm -hmm. author and that the author, if they're really writing, uh, unless they're writing Ian Fleming novels, which I went through like four or five at a time, uh, they're actually they're actually sharing something of themselves. So when I was reading, I felt like I had a connection with the author. And in a sense, I'm communicating with a great mind. And uh, so that was what created the love of knowledge and the love of books. And the result of that was um, I started reading and collecting more. And then I, and then I went to a church where I heard a guy 
who was selling his tapes. And it was so funny. What he said was, look, I got him really at half off in the back of the room. Here's the deal. You're not going to listen to him tonight. You're not even going to listen to him the next month. But this is what you call the deep freeze. You know what you do when you buy something? Sometimes you put it in the freezer. You're not going to eat it right now. Right, right. So what you do is <laughs> you look at the titles and you say, that's something I'm interested in. If not now, maybe later. He said, so put it in the deep freeze because I'm giving it to you for cost half off anyway. So I developed that mentality. If I see a book that I can see a use for or an intriguing application for, or if there is one idea in the book that is important, it's worth the book if that idea is that powerful. And so I scroll through books to, to, with that criterion in mind. And if it matches any of them, I'll make the acquisition. I'm an investor. It's like antiques or art. And it's on the deep Ooh. freeze. I, and, I, and to answer your question, I went through my library once in disgust. I said, I don't need all of Bill's books. I've developed my own preference now. And a lot of the books he had were dated. Uh, they were management books from his period of life. And a lot of things have changed. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to know mega trends for the year 2000. Let me throw that book out. Uh, but I go to grab a book and I said, for instance, this useless book, The Anatomy of Power, I'm just going to throw it out. And I open it up. I go, John Kenneth Galbraith. Okay. All right. So the guy's like 20 <laughs> or 30 books. All right. Anatomy of Power. Uh, he's obviously a uh, liberal. I uh, worked with the Kennedy administration. All right. Okay. Oh, look at this. The Anatomy of Power. There's three kinds of power. There's condign power. There's he basically broke power up into three, three levels. There's the power of, uh, I would change it to the power to, uh, of prospering you or rewarding you, the power of punishing you, and the power of persuasion. He hmm. says all of culture and its mind molders, which would be my institutions, my seven mountains, is predicated upon rising to the summit. And you begin to conform to where the pressure of that environment opens up. If it rewards certain behavior, you will give it. If it punishes certain behavior, you'll avoid it. And the only resistance you have is conscience and conviction, which is the power of persuasion. And he said, for this reason, Christianity became a vital shaper of history before the mercantile system took over and commercialism and materialism became the shaper. He said, because Christ chose not to uh, threaten his followers, nor to seduce his followers, but to educate their conscience. And I thought, my God, and I almost threw the book out. <laughs> so I, I, I backed off and left. I never know when I'm going to find another book with a great idea. Was that a Galbraith book? Did you say the John anatomy Kenneth? of power, John Kenneth Galbraith, the anatomy of power, a yeah. classic. Okay. Yeah. I know the name. I, because William F. Buckley was always railing against him. Exactly. <laughs> I think he was a, uh, an economist. I think he was, he was an economist and, and, and he was, um, and, and, and his whole, and his course, he was a, what we would call a classic liberal, but yeah. wow. his assess, but his assessment, was absolutely right. That's a, that's an awesome anecdote. And I, so much of what you're saying, I totally relate to. And I guess Curtis oh, does yeah. too, because look at Curtis's background. Oh, yeah. He's got so many books. I, I, I couldn't, yeah, I, I totally resonated with what your explanation is. You do need to go through and figure out what you're going to keep, but it's, I think my default is there's probably something in here that there's a reason I have it. And I, I flip through it and there's always something that I, I glean from, but 
Now, that's interesting that you have this combination of, of being a book lover, uh, lover of knowledge, and the deep freeze thing I really connected with, too, because I do the same thing when, I, when I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm not going to have this for dinner tonight. That's going to go in this freezer. And, <laughs> but it's um, a deep freeze, but you can imagine when you might. I like that. But uh, it's, I think it's rare to see someone who loves books like that, who's good with an audience. Tell us, and you are good with an audience. I've seen you in front of audiences. So is that an inborn skill or did you develop that or how did that come about? Were you always performing for people or how would you characterize that? Did you, I, did you I, learn I, that on purpose? No, it was, it was, uh, it was an intuitive uh, thing. I think, I think I've always had a heightened sensitivity to rejection. And so I would be looking for cues in people because imagine that you're kind of feeling like you're, a, you're you know, you're vulnerable. You're off to a military school. The worst scenario is my older brother graduated before me. My dad put him in there. He put him in the military school because he was a brilliant kid who started hanging out with the wrong crowd. And he got arrested by the police for an incident with a buddy of his. And my dad figured that he needed discipline because he's a brilliant but but rebellious. So my older brother goes to military school because he's academically sharp, but possible discipline and problem. And my dad's a World War II vet, and he sends the military as a solution. Well, I follow my brother. Understand me. I'm the actor in the family who's not academic. I'm not prone to conflicts with the law unless I was going to get arrested for partying late at night. So I go in and my every all the students who were under my brother are now over me. So it's really a hierarchical system in the military. It's very evolutionary in the sense of like you know uh, the animal kingdom. And so now they all looked up to my brother, who was a merciless officer, who they all knew was smart. He had gold stars. He was academically rewarded in the academy. And I show up, the dummy in the family, and they're comparing me to my brother. And the question they all have is. Is he smart like his brother? So I have the the hurdle I have to overcome is I have to act like my brother, who was who was a, a Buckley intellect, and I'm not. Uh, I I did great comedy. I liked Mel Brooks. So what I did was <laughs> I impersonated my brother, and I studied nervously late at night to try to at least retain the persona of being academic. I didn't get gold stars. I got silver though, which was okay. It was like one level below. It was enough to give people the impression he's not as smart as his brother, but he's really smart. So I got through my first year imitating, acting. It is like classic NLP. I basically learned the nuance of a performer and I have an acting background. And so I was acting. That started me becoming more hypersensitive for survival mm -hmm. on how to model behavior to fit an audience. So when I started preaching or talking or training, doing business, I, I expanded that sensitivity to the audience. And I read audiences uh, fairly well. And so you could tell if an audience is with you or not. And you keep on working till you find a groove with the audience and then you work the groove. And, and, and it's, it's every audience is different. So it takes a little while, but if you're really intuitive, 
you could start to quickly find where that match is and how to light it. And so I developed it, but I'm, I'm not convinced it's, it's a, it was developed because of um, intentionality. I think it was developed as an extension of insecurity and it's like a lot of skills in life. It, it, it grew out of um, weakness. It became a strength. And now I'm comfortable with any, I, I'm not driven by the same need to please an audience because I've offended audiences too. The, you know, the important thing for me is that I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> that, how long did it take you to get to the point where you're like, I'm just going to have fun and I'm going to enjoy myself. And well, it, it, we'll think. Yeah, it happened. It happened. It happened. Actually, ironically, it happened when I started doing social media because I realized that I was putting so much energy into sounding coherent and intelligent and 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 structuring messages and winning over the audience. I finally said, you know what the heck with it? I'm just going to go with with what I what I'm thinking and feeling. And here's the irony. The more uninhibited and frenetic and unstructured and spontaneous the late night communication the the more viral the video and so it's a weird it's a weird kind of a uh, system of rewards because i found yes. out oh, that if i just if i just if i if i literally just ventilate my frustration with the way the world is and i go but hey, but hey, i'm doing i'm talking about this it's like the audience picks up on it and the next thing you know it's a hundred thousand views in the meantime i've got a film crew and a set and I'm trying to do intelligent Tucker Carlson analysis during the day. Twenty five thousand people watch it, but one hundred thousand would rather watch me in a bathrobe. So what do you do with that? <laughs> That's interesting. That is so fascinating. For those of you who don't know what he's talking about yet, go to his Facebook page, his public Facebook page, and uh, just scroll through his Facebook lives. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. The ones that don't have the nice set behind me. Yeah, and it's just, it's just, it's, it's an office with a bookshelf that's with all the books crammed inside. You, you can see your hand holding the phone, or I don't know how you do it, but it's obviously very low tech. Yeah, it's low tech. You, you're, you're like, it's you don't so have a bad. Guy there, you don't, you're not. There's no makeup or anything. You just it's hold the phone. So it's so and then bad. You have like you have like a quarter million people that watched it, and you're just yelling at the camera. I'm yelling or, at the or camera, you're, or you're laughing. And actually, a lot of times, yeah, I don't. You don't strike me as an angry person because no, even no. when you come off as angry, which I totally get. Like I'm like, yeah, I'm angry about that too. You'll always like smile after, and you'll yeah. say, you'll 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 put it in context that is comforting yeah that, and, that, that, and you'll 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 soften it and you'll it, it'll it gets to your heart where you're like the world isn't ending it's not the world ending this is really frustrating but that's right there's there's a way forward we just got to find is. where that next step is where's that next Ab step? absolutely and, and the so editing there's technique there's hope there is hope and the editing technique you're talking about is, and I really should learn how to do these edits. Like I know other, I watch other people. They actually insert little, I just, I flip my phone around and I put Tucker on or Mark Levin yes, and I, and I hold do. the camera yes, in do. front and then I flip it back to me. Watch this. And I go, but people like it's, that because it's, it's real. Terrible. I'm telling it's so you, it's, bad. It's, but it's real. It's authentic. That's what, yeah. That's what people like about it. Cause we live in a culture that is so hyper-produced. 
slice and dice this and that and they're so used to people being taken out of context we have a we it was a concern for us when we were inviting mm -hmm. people on this we had a lot of discussions about what we were going to slice and dice and the kind of people that we want to have on they're very edgy they're a lot of them are very sensitive about being taken out of context and having a big so i've been telling people we're not going to edit this your what you say will go on and everybody will see the context and so you don't have to worry about that and i don't know if we'll when we have a staff later we'll do that we're it's just you know it's just us girls here in, in our garage here you know i'm i'm like a homeless guy here in the marin headlands as you can see if you see it on youtube but yeah but, but, uh, but what what a great window view you've got i mean you got the golden gate bridge <laughs> now uh you have moved into for those of who don't know that you've moved into a more of a professionalization of your media presentation and that seems like it's been about the last two years was it the the last two year crazy stuff that starts with a v that was that was the whole thing no actually that, it was or? before that it was before that it was okay. um it was uh you know it's kind of like I got a house. I had to move out of an office because I was living in one. My millennials had me move into one of these uh, high tech offices. You ever see these offices? They're all glass. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, you're working, you're working in a, in a room with glass. Yeah. And I mean, Lucas, you could appreciate this because you understand how young minds work as a professor. Yeah. And they and then, then there's the games in the hallway where they're, you know, it's kind of, it's, a, it's a millennial kind of paradise where they could all socialize and work in glass containers and go out. Well, I thought that'd be really hip. <laughs> but I go into the into the fishbowl and uh, I'm, I'm ADD, so I'm distracted by people walking. I'm waving at people that don't even want to wave back. It's like they, they <laughs> block me out. And uh, and then I'm in the little glass room inside of it, which would be my office. And I found that everybody could hear what I was saying. It's like a Seinfeld episode. If I said, well, how's the productivity? And they're yelling out there. It's fine. They could all hear me talk. Like I'm in the shower. <laughs> I said, this is ridiculous. There's no there's no privacy. So my staff would stay there. And when we outgrew it, I said, six or 7,000 a month is what it costs me to rent. Now, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sophisticated in this, but it seems to me that if I had a house that I paid a six or $7,000 for, I'd own it and I wouldn't be paying off rent for an office. Why do people put money into these expensive offices? And so I went to a lawyer's house I had to meet with who's working on doing data management for uh, a political campaign or something. And I go to a house and there's two cars in the drive. I walk in, it's his secretary's over here. His conference room's over there. I go, John, what's the deal? Is this, a, is this where you live? He goes, Oh no, I, I bought a house for the law practice, but I only let one or two cars around here at any one point in time. So I don't want the neighbors to freak out. Yeah. because I'm actually using it for my business. He said, and of course I get the appreciated value, but I, everything I was thinking, I said, that's it. Except I've got like seven people. It's going to be the Beverly Hillbillies. Everyone's going to see what's going on <laughs> yeah. with me. I mean, and, and with my wife, especially an entourage will come in. The, 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 the story's blown by noon. So I'm trying to find a property. Now this is, this is the truth. I don't want to go long on this, but this is how the Lord does stuff. Uh, my wife likes to go to Aruba. She likes to be with her husband. She likes to have alone time. I am a creature of, I mean, to me, work is not work. I love what I do. And so I could do it all the time. 
I could broadcast all the time. I could be involved in politics. I could be involved with heated discussions. I could be like Rush Limbaugh did what he loved to do. If he, yeah. he, he said, why would I retire? I'm actualized like Maslow. I'm actualized yeah. doing this. Yeah. So. So it's it's a little bit of a you watch that you don't burn out, though. That's the thing is, well, I think that's where, that's where you get married. And your wife usually is the voice of reason. And she's the one saying, watch that you don't get burned out. Right. So I uh, off to Aruba with the beach and the sedentary tropical lifestyle. And I said, Lord, my office needs an office because we're leaving the office. And I went to like five different places to go rent and all of them fell through. And the Lord says, go on vacation with your wife. And I said, I'm going to be gone for like a couple of weeks. And my office needs to know where it's going. I got a team of like five or six people. I got to go somewhere. The Lord said, go on vacation with your wife, prioritize rest and your marriage. I'll take care of it. But you know, you, you, you don't know if you're really hearing God, but that seemed to be what God said. And I just thought it was like, I guess what I'm doing isn't that big a deal in my ministry that I need an office because evidently I'm taking a month or so off now, like a sabbatical. While I was there, I got a phone call, Lucas, and Mercedes, my business manager, said, we found a house that is zoned for ministry or what? for residential what? with 13 acres of property on wetlands, and you can get it for basically like $800,000 because they just dropped 200,000 from a million to 800,000. Wow. wow. You could do this and be paying half of what you're doing for rent right now. Oh my God. And she shows me a video of it while I'm in Aruba with my oh, wife on a so vacation. Awesome. And so that's when the property materialized when I obeyed God and stopped looking for it. Mm. So what I, I totally get it. And I'm not weirded out by anything you just said. And you know, that Not at all, but, but there are people that are listening to this and they're like, wait, you heard God's voice. What's going on with that? Is this an audible voice? Is this a sense of, in, of conviction? Is it, is it a thought in your head that intrudes? How would you describe that experience? I would say that almost all Christians in the charismatic community um, have a tendency to have the thought that comes to them that is rather forceful as though it's their own voice, but yet it comes into them. It's not necessarily in the train of thought they were thinking. That's an evidence that it's, it could be the Lord or it might be the devil for that matter. Cause the devil intrudes into your thinking now and then. And uh, what happens is you have that thought and you start to feel conviction. To me, that's the power of conscience that is so precious. And it's the danger of, of not listening to conscience. Because when I develop a sense of moral conviction about a value, and God is saying something that is contrary to my desire and what my flesh wants, I know it's not the devil saying you need to take some time off and focus on your wife. <laughs> it's not the, it's not the, the devil typically isn't telling me that he's telling me the opposite. So I'm thinking I'm getting convicted. This is a priority from God. And I'm doing this unto the Lord because the thought is clear. It lines up in my conscience. It's clearly in the word. I've got three confirmations by my conscience, uh, wisdom and the Bible and I'm thinking, I'm just going to have to trust the Lord for that office. He knows I have a need. I'm praying about it. I'm going to commit it to him. So when everything falls in place, you go back and look at that moment when you felt 
you, the thought came and you felt convicted and the word was backing it up and you realized that was God talking to me. And, and so when we retell the testimony, we say the Lord said, but what we're really doing is we're saying what to me was at 20% to 30% clarity at the moment that I heard it became a hundred percent. Once I understood the other side, well, it's kind of like that little voice that says, turn left. I don't know. Turn left. All right, you turn left and you avoided the accident over there later on. The Lord told me to turn left. Yeah. But at the time you're almost like debating mm -hmm. because God's voice, it comes with a, with a kind of subtlety that you can resist it or suppress it if you want to. That bit about Satan, someone I sense is listening to this in the future and is, is thinking you sound reasonable. You love knowledge. You like books. You're convinced that there is a devil or a dark spiritual reality. Can you tell us why you believe that? Is this, it's not just a way you're talking. That's you. It's a real belief that you have, that there is a dark spiritual presence in the oh, world. Sure. I'll and it's tell personalized. You it's very personalized. Matter of fact, the thought that came to me, oddly enough, while I was telling that testimony is there are people listening to this that have actually had thoughts of suicide. You need to know that that is not you talking to yourself. That is the devil talking to you about taking your life mm. that um, there are, that and this is and, and it, it shouldn't be a surprise that you can hear God because the devil infuses his thoughts into your thoughts so that you think it's you thinking it in the same way that God will infuse himself into your thoughts so that you aren't aware that it is God talking until you start to obey the still small voice. That's what Elijah called it. It's not, it's not an audible in your ear. It's a still small voice. You almost have to develop a, um, a reverence for hearing God so that you can actually hear God. But I'm telling somebody right now, that voice that is talking to you about self-destruction is the devil. And I rebuke that voice. You're hearing this broadcast right now because you have a purpose and a destiny that the devil wants to stop. And that's the reason why you struggle like you do with the dark thoughts, with the depression, with the feeling of being misunderstood, isolated, alone, and that the pain is such that the only way you think you can end it is to end your life. That is that is Satan right there. If you want to know what the definition yeah. of the devil is. And you're hearing this because you're hearing Christians talk that have struggles, but we found deliverance, we found hope, and we find it in community. And you need to reach out to these guys. How do people get in touch with you, by the way, if they want to get in touch with your your broadcast, get in touch with you guys? Well, but they'll, they'll be listening to it on the podcast <clears throat> or our YouTube channel. Uh, they might go to our website, therepublicanprofessor.com forward slash podcast. Republicanprofessor.com. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we'll... If they're listening to this, uh, they're already they're already in touch with us. So um, I wanted to ask you, do you ever have anxiety? Oh, yeah. You know, I have anxiety. And, and, and how do you understand that? Well, you know, I heard Mark Sharona, my, my friend, uh, say this once. Paul said, you know, I have learned I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. Think about that. 
he learned in whatever state he was in to be content. What does that imply? It implies that he did not have contentment and had to learn how to be content. So I've learned that when anxiety comes, it's a perfectly understandable human emotion. I've learned that I have to turn the anxiety into um, into a, uh, a prayer, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding will keep your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So the, the, the idea that, that, that anxiety is a trigger, I, I get triggered to pray. And I do it when I feel un, when I feel intense emotion like anxiety. And the, and, the, and the thing is to try to turn it into a, a link with God. Like, what am I anxious about? What is the thing that is really, I had a, I had a trainer once who was not a Christian, but he was a brilliant business manager. He said that he, had a, he practiced a thing called witness awareness, which is when you get anger, when you get fear, when you get insecurity, when you get any kind of a negative emotion, become curious. Don't, don't, don't kill it right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Become, become inquisitive because if you're inquisitive, you might learn something about yourself and the way that you're structured. He said, become, it's, he calls it witness awareness. Be aware that you're witnessing an intense emotion and then ask questions about the origin of it, why it exists, what you did that set it up, and what's the best way of mitigating it. Since I know your children, uh, Joy, and I know... I know Lance Jr. I, I they strike me as happy kids. I know that every kid has problems, but they. I wonder, do you have a? Did you have a happy childhood? Would you say that you do you grew up in a happy home? And it's, it's such an interesting question, isn't it? They the um. I'd say that Lance Jr. has had a lot more um, challenges with being happy. Uh, even after he met you in Pepperdine, uh, because he really, he, he didn't quite know. He was very conscientious about answering the call of God. And when, when you're, when you're really conscientious, it produces problems because you have a tendency to turn that high criteria for perfection against yourself. And you feel like you're not measuring up. You're not doing what you're supposed to do. Something's wrong. I think a lot and of people relate to that. A yeah, lot of, a lot of people. I definitely relate to that. Yeah, and 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 uh, and it's and it's really called. There's a scale for that, which is in the Minnesota multiphasic 44 factor analysis. It's um, it's high CP. It's called high critical parent. It's when you have a little voice in your head that is like a parent that's critical of your performance, and that high CP scale causes you to feel like you're not measuring up. And if you get if you get into a certain spiral. You can actually, and so for a while, now Lance is better now, but for a while, my big concern was that he wasn't certain that he was doing what he was supposed to do. And he felt that in some way um, he couldn't be, he couldn't, he couldn't enjoy life unless he was doing the right thing and doing what he was supposed to do. And it created this glorious discontent with yeah. no matter how good things were, he, 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 he created a habitation. <clears throat> with his frustration mm -hmm. that was maddening for me because 
uh, by comparison, I have a very simple, uh, you know, I'm happier. I get happier, easier over superficial things. Hey, we had a great, <laughs> sh- we had a great show last night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm happy, but, uh, but I'm, like, I'm pro- like Lance jr. And you're like my grandpa. There you like, go. My exactly. grandpa is the same way. I don't know how he does it. He trains his mind. He, he, it's almost like he indoctrinates his own self. And I, I mean that in a good sense, like the military, you may be in military school. You had this, but in the military, they called it indoc, indoc, indoctrination, where you you had to be trained, and it sounded like you said use the scripture memory and anxiety. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, and, you and, have you to know, train yourself. It is. It, it truly is. And and the and the secret is, I'm convinced, is everyone creates a criterion of some sort for their happiness. Like what needs to exist for me to be happy? I was at a seminar yeah. where this yeah. guy had. Um, I mean, he had a couple of million dollars and, 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 and uh, it was a Tony Robbins actually was at, at a management retreat and he goes, well, how much do you have to have to be happy? He said, well, I think mm-hmm. I need like around five. So meanwhile, he says, is there anybody else here that is just, just wakes up in the morning and is happy? And the guy, one guy puts his hand up because, well, how much money do you need to be happy? He goes, that's not how I look at it to me. If I'm above ground when I wake up and not underground, he says, I'm happy. Any day I'm alive is a happy day. (laughs) But Tony stopped the room. And I never forgot this. He said, that is the point. He said, when you put conditions on, when when is your marriage going to be a marriage you're happy with? Well, when my wife starts to lose 50 pounds, look how she let herself go. Well, when she starts cleaning the house and or when when he starts listening to me and pays attention to me, what everyone creates some factors that when they're met, they'll be happy. The fewer that you have, the better. That's the secret. Ooh. Mm. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Lance, what would you say that your mission is right now? I mean, and has it changed in the last 10 years? Well, well, I have a profound frustration uh, to be honest with you, because I have friends of mine that are at Mar-a-Lago and they're meeting with Donald Trump. I'm going to talk to Paula White this week. I'm going to meet with her and, and with, um, uh, another gal who she's working with right now in an American first projects or something like that, because they get these influencers there. And I'm frustrated because I don't have more access to um, the, uh, I, I want to be able to have a bigger impact than I'm having. And so there's a certain kind of, and I have my own criteria, right? So someone could say, wow, if you have 50,000, 700,000 downloads a month, oh my, but to me, I still know people introduce me as how many of you have never heard of Lance? It's like one of the funniest introductions in the world. It's like, I'm introduced <laughs> as how many don't know me. Oh, what kind of, you know, I'm, I'm glad I have self-esteem. It's the weirdest introduction, but how many don't know who Lance is? So I would like to be able to have, uh, and this is my own, see, I'm creating my own, my own criteria yeah, here. That's right, I'm making that's right, myself that's right. unhappy. Listen, I'm not practicing what I preach, hmm. but I need more visit. I wish I had the ability to be in the top 20 that's at Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump looking at Christians and saying, you guys need to work together and you need to start to create an echo chamber for greater messaging. You need to manage the messaging process because we're getting killed by corporate control of tech and media. And you guys have to start to create a a better rhythm of collective communication because we're in a battle of ideas right now. I could lead that process. I got, you know, I would love to, but I'm not in the room. And that's what I'm going to talk to Paul about because nobody else leaves that huddle like I do. I leave it thinking about how to make it happen. Everyone else leaves it thinking they were at Mar-a-Lago. 
Oh, that's a very good difference right there. That's you just put your finger on a lot right there. You're in other words, you're interested in let's make it as general as possible just to bring some people that listening to this down from the, uh, the height there, you want to make the world a better place. And you think that that's possible. It's obviously not completely possible. Or do you believe that? Do you believe that we can perfect the world? I believe, I believe right now that we are in what is in the, uh, the language of, uh, you know, some historians, a fourth turning. We're in, you know, Klaus Schwab calls it the Great Reset, but we're in the fourth turning that America is in the crucible of definition. I, it, its future will be determined by how we show up right now. I feel as though we're alive at a time like the Revolutionary War, like the Civil War, or like World War II. It's a crucible, 70 to 80 year cycles. It happens in American history. And I feel frustrated because I don't think we're the strongest generation. I think we're a weaker one in many ways. And so I want to see for the future, I want to see America survive. The ideas that have become like an invasive plant, an invasive species, the ideas that have spawned uh, in the universities have worked their way into corporate um, uh, you know, boardrooms, are now working into this weird merger of big corporate uh, technology and politics, which means government and corporations are now colluding together in a way that could destroy the freedoms of every one of us. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, if there's a, if there's a double-edged sword to wisdom, it's that the more information you have, the more capacity you have to be bothered. I know what their agenda is. When we yep. talk about, um, you know, yeah. for instance, I listened to the Klaus Schwab with the Davos, you know, organization. And when they're talking about, the um, the potentiality of working with the transhumanist agenda where they could actually put uh, nanotechnology into the injections that you're getting Ugh. so that according to them, they can now produce surveillance under your skin and they celebrate it because they can now have IDs for individuals. They could track individuals. They could monitor their health, but they could also monitor their emotional reactions. They could determine whether you like the speech that Der Fuhrer gave or if you don't like it. And to them, that is an enormous gift in terms of creating the utopian world they want to create. When, when, I, when, I, when I'm aware of that, I realize that I want to be able to articulate what's happening clear enough to alert and mobilize, kind of like one by land, two by sea. I want to see the body of Christ sufficiently informed and sufficiently um, uh, agitated and activated hmm. so that they could play the decisive role they need to, to not let the devil um, take this culture and destroy it. The same way that he can talk to an individual to commit suicide, I'm convinced he's producing cultural suicide an economic suicide in a great nation, like Lincoln said, if we were to ever to fall, God has situated us between two great oceans. It will have to be by suicide. And I fear that we are destroying ourselves. So with that cherry thought, my goal is to try to create a, uh, a Rush Limbaugh-like analysis of events that is both informative, predictive, and optimistic. And I don't have the skill yet to do it. I mean, it's not its not just the audience. It's that I'm working every day. It's a new field for me. I mean, this wasn't what I did before, but I feel like somebody, people like me need to be out there that are that are 
taking no. that that scope of interest and then translating it into the language that the Galilean speaks so that the yeah. my, my tribe gets it and that they're doing something with it. Yeah. I noticed yeah. that there's a, oh, go ahead, Curtis. No, I was just, yeah, we need, we need people like you and people out there working on getting better at this. Yeah. What I noticed that it's difficult for people to come to agreement about which issues are important. You seem to have a set of issues on your radar and you are convinced those are the right issues to really zero in on and, and nail down. How do you come up with the what's on that list and, and what issues you should focus on? Because uh, some people might not even know who this Klaus Schwab guy is. I know who he is because we just had Michael Rechtenwald on for the great reset guy that wrote the Hillsdale piece in last December. And there you go. A lot of people know what Hillsdale is. They get the mailer. Some don't. and Maybe they're getting it now. But um, but, you know, that's a, that's one example. But there's obviously a set of issues that you have on your radar uh, and you're managing the messaging process. You want to be like a new Rush Limbaugh for a new media new medium i mean yeah, I, rush wasn't wasn't doing facebook lives <laughs> in his basement no yes but, yeah, but you that's obviously right. you obviously have an intuition about how to use this technology i know there's some frustrations but uh when i first connected with you on facebook i think we um i think i accidentally stumbled into your your public page. And I was like, holy cow, this guy has like 50,000 followers. I was like, wow. And then it was yeah. like a couple of years later, it was like a quarter million. Yeah. And now it's like, you know, so you, there's obviously, yeah, you're obviously doing something right. And, yeah, and, and nothing, nothing like my board so, member, Don, who told me after Trump was in office, well, you know, Lance, you really took off there, but I think you were riding the Donald Trump phenomenon. Now it's things are going to plateau and decline. I mean, I've had those those guys. I go to yeah. bed and I go, "What if the Lord's preparing me for a plateau and decline?" And it just <laughs> shot right past that. Thank God he was wrong. <laughs> you were uh, now. You're a fan of Donald Trump. You like him? Oh, I I know this is going to be abrasive to the more intellectual your crowd. Why is it that academicians? particularly my brothers are like this. Why is it that the higher you would think the higher your IQ, the more objective you can be in evaluating facts oh, such as be disappointed. Is oh, the yeah. economy yeah. better now? I, I mean, even my gosh, even you got uh, you got comedians like Trevor Noah even able to say somehow I don't think if Donald Trump called the Saudi princes and right. said, I need to talk to you. I think they'd probably call Donald Trump back with Biden, but the, forget it. We're not calling the guy he's and you know, Bill Maher says the same things. Look, say what you will about Trump, at least when he was in office, you didn't have, you know, North Korea with its seventh missile and Russia invading, yeah. you know, say what you will. I'd hated the guy who was an idiot, but you didn't. In other words, I'm just saying, right. look at the scorecard. I mean, forget about right, style. Right. Just look yeah, at yeah. the consequence. I know. Yeah. Well, a lot of yeah. people couldn't get past that style. What? what I'm sorry to interrupt I, you, Curtis. No, no, you didn't interrupt. No, I was too many academics and, and too many people in general, even the people in the media on the left, they're, they're too concerned about what other people are thinking about them. They don't want to lose their perch. <laughs> I'm telling you, this is what yeah, it is. Yeah. I'm convinced of it. Remember, remember what Jesus said? He said that um, the Bible says that the many of the priests believed on him. Nevertheless, 
uh, lest they be put out of the synagogue. They did yes. not acknowledge him openly. That's right. I think there's a great many. It certainly is true in Hollywood. It has to be true on these campuses. I know that the professors, they're, they're killing off the balance of power. If I have one big thing I would do in America that would change it, it would be I would force the universities to practice diversity <laughs> and the diversity they need and inclusion they need to practice is they need to balance out the worldviews that are on the faculty so that students are able to have an intelligent debate hearing a conservative worldview uh, threaded through the social sciences that have been, you know, mm. bastardized. Uh, a look at history, American history, civics, et cetera. I'm happy for Hillsdale. But the problem is the average heathen isn't going to Hillsdale. They're going off to Stanford and they're going right. off to Harvard. And, and these places are getting weirder and more eccentric as time goes by yeah. because they don't have they, yeah. they don't have that. It's a monolith now. Instead of having a diversity, it's all one voice. And you're yeah, killing yeah. the whole idea of so intellectual ironic. development. It's so if ironic. If they just add logic, just the logic class to the to the requirements, that would fix a lot. Yeah. Well, it's got to be taught by the right guy, too. That, no, that's Yeah. I'll that's volunteer. Uh, Lance, we got to get this on the record here. Um, sorry to put you on the spot here, but are you a hateful person? Do you, how, do you keep the black people from working for you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, what's really what's really hilarious. You, is do you have my, phobias? Do you have any phobias you need to tell us about? Well, you know, the, tr the truth of the matter is our ministry, which is as I do media now, but I created a for profit in the media. Our ministry is actually my wife's operation, which is furnishing families of Texas. And the hilarious thing is she's the only white woman in the all black meetings, which is kind of it's, it's like a, it's like to me, it's particularly comedic. Because her ministry is single mothers that don't have furniture for their kids and beds for their children. Mm. But it's an overwhelming demographic is the African-American Hispanic moms, primarily African-American that fall between the cracks of the system. So all of the clients that we're working with that are our team are actually we have we have more we have more employees that uh, that are African-American than Black Lives Matter has. And what's great is wow. that what's funny is my main ministry that I don't talk about is I love the 10 year olds. I don't know how it happened, but all the moms tend to have nine to 10 to 11 year old sons. And so they're all buddies in the same housing projects. And I have them come over to my house. So on any given weekend, you're going to see me with my gang and my gang is a whole <laughs> bunch of young black kids and we're having Nerf ball fights out on my acres out here and we're having, uh, you know, <laughs> so, so I, I, I only bring that up because I think that I, I go along with Dr. Daniel Goldman's research on emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. that the fastest way to overcome prejudice in the prison system if you ever get a place where you've got some hardened criminals that have race issues, uh, if you can, if you put people in a relationship where they develop empathy, that is the feeling of attachment where they could feel what someone else feels who is of a different ethnicity or a different background, it creates a bonding at a kind of a subliminal level that builds the capacity to, break the us them stereotype 
Yeah. And, and you're suddenly two human beings with differences that are connected. And, and to me, the way that you deal with the increasing prejudice in America, which is, I'm sorry to say, is being, is being facilitated and developed by critical race theory, poisoning dialogue and perverting perspective, is for people that are different to be in settings where they develop social rapport and mutually empathic relationships, where they begin to feel for, and by the way, that's what the church is. The remedy is actually the kingdom of God, because, right. because we go to church together, we do life together. And now the relationships are, are as connected as human beings can be connected with the differences of our styles, our histories, our languages, and but without the hostility. I'm just saying there's something in this that America's lost, and it's yeah. common sense. Yeah. It's that my, when I went to military school, I remember my one of my professors, Colonel Rickert, was an Air Force guy. He said that they had a problem in World War One and World War II, and here's the problem. America just come through the Civil War. Southerners really didn't like the Northerners, and the Northerners didn't like the Southerners. This is hard to believe now. But, I mean, you go back, and there was kind of a prejudice if you're a Northerner or a Southerner. Oh, and, wow. Uh, that was good. And it was, and it was for real. My mother was rejected by my father's mother because she was a Northerner. And my, she want, my, my grandmother wanted her son to marry a Southern girl. There was, it was still there back then. So uh, what they did was they took the, the recruits from the North, New York, Michigan, Chicago, and they sent them to Fort Dix in the South to get trained. And they took the Georgia, Alabama, Texas boys and sent them up North to get trained. And they did it on wow. purpose because wow. they wanted the Northern drill instructors to, I don't, it's a weird thing to develop that abusive relationship with Southerners <laughs> and the Southern drill started to yell at the Northerners, but somehow it prepared them. So when they went to fight, they didn't have cultural division. Wow. I mean, America should remember that. Hmm. So you would say you're not a hateful person, right? Or I would, I would say that I'm not a hateful person though. Or, or that there are certain are, things I do hate. I seal it. Yeah, there's well, somebody that's listening to this is like, ah, yeah, he's a smooth talker, but he's really a hateful person. He's got. The yeah, well, but I mean, honestly, if you ask them if they're a hateful person, if they're a really smart, hateful person, would they admit it? <laughs> he, he surrounds himself with all those black children because he's just very good at. But you said that you don't talk about it. You, you barely That's talk so about you signaling Lance. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I'm bringing it up because because it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. One, it's one of the secret ironies of my life, which is really funny because we talk about white people when we're together. It's really funny because it's like we're together and we're going through like um, South Lake is a predominantly white evangelical kind of town <laughs> yeah. down here. And I'm going through the gourmet department and I lean over and we're looking at people staring because here I am with the mother and the child. And I look like we're an interracial couple. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. <laughs> and so, and so I look over her, I'm laughing. I'm going, do you see what I see? And we're talking about all those funny looks we're getting from white people, <laughs> but I'm talking about white people. Like I'm, one, like I'm with them. What, but do it's they kind have of, to, what do they, the singles mothers have to do to get the furniture? Is there all they have to do is contact furnishing families of Texas and they contact my wife and she's got five warehouses and she's got a crew of like anywhere from five to 20 and she's got a 25 foot tractor trailer and she's looking for a second one and it's hilarious wow. because 
it's all word of mouth. So the so the Marriott Hotel calls her up and says, hey, lady, we got 125 rooms ramping out next week. She basically hires a bunch of uh, of uh, workers and gets the trucks and she empties out 125 televisions, desks, beds. Wow. Boom. And she's furnishing families in Texas. That's and is phenomenal. it all over Texas or is it just in the Dallas? Well, area? We're, we're trying to focus it on where we could drive and where Lance, by the way, Lance Jr. is working for her. So awesome. he's in, he, he's in charge of he's doing he's doing the social media and stuff now. Oh, cool. So awesome. So and he's a great writer. He's a powerful writer. Yes, he is. So he's a, good, um, he's a very talented man. He is. He is talented. And so he's and so he's uh, but we stick with F Dallas and Fort Worth. Although we, we do, we do build connections in other cities with people that we know. And now how did she, uh, come up with that idea? Was she, um, uh, just saw some furniture laying around and she, no, like with the books with you, you were like, no, well, don't waste those books. And she said, don't it, waste it, the furniture. It's one, it's one of those weird stories where, where, uh, she uh, the, the the reality is she went to the Y the YMCA YWCA with her girlfriend, and she heard about women that are living in their cars in Fort Worth because they don't have places to live. They're living with their children in vehicles, and she came home so uh, so seized by this idea that we've got missionary work we do in Africa and India all over the world. And right here in our backyard, we've got mothers and children. And so she's got an empathy for the kids and the mothers. She goes, can you believe that? And then she runs into one lady who doesn't have beds, a bed for her son. And uh, my son, Carl had a water disaster. He left the, the sink going in the bathroom and it ended up, we had to take out the whole room. And, and so we had a bed to give away and that stuff. So right away, my wife is in the giving away furniture business and finds out she can help single moms. She finds people that will get them apartments. And so imagine this, you, you, you get a place to live for six months, but you have no furniture and you have no money. She comes along and she furnishes the place. And then, you know, the next thing is I'm I'm finding myself hiring people and paying because they need money. So, you know, I'm realizing that, you know, I'm involved with this thing because she's rescuing people and helping them out. And I said, all right, look, you can't do this, Annabelle. You can't put these people on my credit card. They have to get jobs. Well, so she starts putting together the pieces. And, and, and the bottom line is I'm on my, uh, this, is, this, is like only, this is like only three years ago she started this. I was in Philadelphia at dinner and uh, and it was our anniversary. And uh, and so I take her to dinner in Philadelphia and she starts talking about these kids and about these houses and about these mothers and about and the Lord kind of nudges me now to back to your point. How do you know it's God? Yeah, it, I felt very strongly this awareness of, you know, you normally talk and this is, it was annoying me because she just kept on going about this disaster with these families. And I was feeling like saying, can we talk about something else? Are we going to talk about this all night? <laughs> but I really, I felt like this divine finger to the lip that says, mm. let her go her whole life. She's been supporting you and what you do. I'm bringing her into what she's called to do. Mm -hmm. And I want you to be supportive and, and don't be a know-it-all and don't interrupt her. Let her get it out of her system. So the whole dinner, I let her vision cast about what needs to be done for these mothers. 
And I basically kind of like as a midwife, I ask questions. Well, how would you do this? How would you do that? Well, I'd have to get a storage place. We need, I don't know, we'd have to get the money. Maybe we can get some, maybe we can raise some money. But da, 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 da. And I realized God put a burden in her heart. She knows nothing about social work. She knows nothing about working with the government. She knows nothing about furnishing families and minority needs other than being a pastor's wife in a church with me for years. And so she's the perfect candidate because she has nothing to unlearn. And so she just did it. Next thing you know, we got warehouse. Actually, we got, I had my house was besieged with boxes from Amazon mattresses coming in. She was using our house as a warehouse. I came home. I was like the Alamo. I'm, I'm, pack, I'm packing up a, a stuff around. And then I did a broadcast. And I said, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, that's great. This I is I what's saw, in my I house. I saw that one. I think I saw yeah, that one. I said, you guys have got to help me. My wife has got to get, you got to help me. We got to get some money. I can only take this yeah, so long. I'm absolutely. underwriting it. We're going to have a problem with our marriage if you don't help me. And we, we, we launched the ministry. And so people started funding her to get her, get a storage unit. Lance, I don't know what you got your wife for the anniversary that year, but what, but you listening to her and letting her work that out and probing those questions. That was the gift. That was the gift right there. I believe, I believe it was. Awesome. And, and the truth is once again, it had to be God because it's not my personality. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. connect the dots for somebody that's listening in the future here. Is she liberal? Is she a Democrat? Is that why she's, she has Listen, the heart for this? It's, it's hilarious. Her parents and my parents were like good friends. Her dad's a doctor in Philadelphia. My dad was the lawyer, the business guy. She's got sisters. Two of them are professors. Um, and, uh, wow. so they're all Northeast. Let me, let me ask you what you think her family of origins, like uh, politically and socially. I've met North her one time. She wouldn't know me from Adam, but I've met her one time. Okay. Okay. So Annabelle's family is Northeast. Um, and, uh, God bless them. They're a great family, great Italian family, all liberals, all Democrats, all progressives for the most part. So she because probably of my influence, I would have to say, bringing her, you know, she became a Christian because of me. And so we both went on the journey together. We weren't politically conservative or liberal, but she herself, unlike her family, is a conservative. But she's a conservative in the sense that um, she's more like a Bible-believing pragmatist. Like, you know, if, like she doesn't like, she, does, she doesn't have the fight in her that I've got. Like, for instance, right. Tucker Carlson gives her anxiety. She'd rather watch Frasier reruns. So, <laughs> you know, so, so she wants to, she wants to laugh at night and she'll probably live longer than me. She likes laughing. I like getting upset. I get neurotic. I watch Tucker. Then yeah. I'm getting, I'm, I'm all upset. Well, but that doesn't translate into how she votes. That just translates into how she stays calm. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. She doesn't yeah. need to feel like she need, has the, the latest details of the latest thing on the list that we're trying to keep an eye on. She, um, she's like, okay, I think I get the big picture. I mean, I'm just, you know, you tell me if I got this right. She gets, she's like, yeah, yeah, I get the big picture. I know what politically is going on. These people need help. And also, I also want my night to be calm. Is that in a, in a sense, right? Is that right? Yeah. I, you okay. got it exactly right. So in a sense, She's living, and it reminds me that there are people like this, other than me. Yes. I'm not like that myself. But That's there right. are people that are actually doing God's business. 
Yes. And every day she's rescuing the parishy and caring for the dying. And she's she's like Mother Teresa there in Fort Worth. And mm-hmm. when she comes home, she wants her husband in a conversation. She's interested in what bothers me. I inform her about how the world's falling apart. She shares my anxiety <laughs> and then watches a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a certain wisdom to that. I mean, because yeah. you need to maintain people who have issues with their nerves, you know, they're in fight or flight. That's who we're trying to reach after, especially last year, people are in fight or flight. They're exhausted or they're in dorsal vagal shutdown with their nerves. And we want people we I know as an educator, if a student is in that state, they won't learn. It doesn't matter how how great the slick the messaging they can't take it in that's exactly right you have to be in rest and digest to really oh my gosh you and my wife would totally get along she's telling me rest and digest (laughs) rest and digest my gosh she's giving me that quote but it's very difficult to do i mean i'm learning i'm a you know work in progress i i have help uh i'll give sarah jackson a plug sarah jackson coaching she's got a, a toolkit called restore and I've known her for over 10 years. We were writing colleagues together. I'm trying to get her to come on the podcast. Um, she's a, she struggled with chronic indivisible illness for a long time. And, you know, a lot of people have these issues where that it's, there's a, there's complicated, the doctors can't figure it out, but your nerves just need a break. And you're absolutely right. And so uh, that's why some people, they just can't stand Twitter. They just can't stand social media there. And there are toxic elements of social media. Um, it's, it's prompted me to think about how I use it and how I want to, um, where we're going, uh, in terms of that, just because I'm an educator and I know you, you, at some point you might be, I might be shooting myself in the foot or somebody else might be shooting themselves in the foot if they're constantly posting stuff. And, um, and it's got a certain like, uh, frantic ring to it all the time. I think you're very good at not doing that because you'll oftentimes have Bible verses and, and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, you know, and, it's, it's, and, and so we try to do like tomorrow, I'll be doing two Bible studies, which is very difficult because I'm all, I'm all ginned up on, you know, uh, <laughs> on the other subjects and I have to force myself to get, it's kind of like going to the gym. I have to yeah, force yeah. myself to yeah. have to, I'm going to talk about from this perspective yes. and I have to go there tomorrow and to broadcast. And by the way, this is, you know, I, I was telling you, I don't think we could do a long form interview because, uh, you know, I was, uh, we, I don't have the time or I have the yeah. energy, but the reality is, I don't know how long we've been going, but I'm realizing we're ending up with the Joe Rogan length interview here and I could <laughs> keep going, but my staff is yeah. waving me down because they're over in the corner going, at some point they go home. So. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's about 620 your time, 621. Yeah. So we'll let you go and get you some dinner. But we thank you. Thank you for coming on. It's and been great being with you, Lance. Good, thank you. Good so catching much. up with you. I tell everybody I said hi. Chelsea well, I sure I, I sure will. Okay. I mean, there's, yeah. and there's uh, there's more Mercedes. to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you want to come back on? Well, you're yeah, yeah. But I, I, mean, I mean, we've opened up a couple of interesting subjects. We should explore this, and and I want and I want to tell you about my wife. She's got the rest and digest. She's got an entire. <laughs> she's with Doctor Tennant. I don't know if you know Doctor Tennant is Tony Robbins has had him. He's evidently like a genius kind of doctor. He's in his eighties now, 
but he invented uh, the, some kind of a corneal transplant or some kind of sur LASIK surgery. He invented the LASIK surgery. Okay. So he's really brilliant. But she's got all these new age contraptions in my house. It's hilarious. I've, I'm like married to like, I don't remember, it's before your time for both of you, but George Burns and Gracie Allen. My wife is like Gracie Allen. She's <laughs> got these things. She's got these pads I put my feet on and I have to turn the voltage up and get an electric current going through me. Because according to Dr. Tennant and her, I don't have enough uh, energy. Electrics, my cells are not, they're, they're not functioning with the full energy. So I have to kind of electrocute myself every night while I'm watching Tucker. I think maybe she's trying to, she's trying to break me of the habit. So I have to turn the voltage up. I got my feet on, but this is another broadcast I did the other night. It's my last live one is me explaining my wife's uh, electronic uh, solution to what I need. To, oh. for the rest and digest but she's Ooh. got all these contraptions around my house that's that's she so she's plugged in she knows what, she knows about the nervous system the nervous <laughs> system it's she's all about in. The, in 2022 the nervous system is all up you gotta you gotta level up on the nervous system because otherwise especially if you're trying to reach people i'm talking to myself i'm not necessarily talking to you but you already you know annabelle's already taking care of you but but a lot for a lot of people, they're so frazzled and frayed from the last two years. Uh, and I, I love what you said about suicide earlier and depression, because I'm certain I'm certain that that's an issue for somebody listening yes. to this in the future. I believe yes. it. And and we do believe that darkness exists. We do believe that we can make the world better. And that's the project. We're not hateful people. We love people. We want to make the world better. That's what a lot of people are missing. If you if you're told that we don't want that, you're that's a lie. That's, that's just right. a lie from the pit of hell. Absolutely, my friend. So we're thankful for you coming on, and we want. Wait, to I have to say one thing. I got to okay. say one more thing. I know we got to end. I know we got to end, but it's fine. Just that's as fine. a teaser for the next. Trying to be sensitive to. I know. I know. I appreciate it. But I just. I wanted to tell you this because of that. That point about the devil. And I wanted to say this because maybe we'll get Annabelle. It'd be great to have guys like you discussing with Annabelle and me. It'd be hilarious, actually, to have this conversation with her also. Yes, to absolutely. See. absolutely. I mean, that would be very entertaining because you're such a good questioner and listener. But here, let me tell you something. My wife, I wanted to educate her about spiritual things. It's hilarious. When I, I lead her to, I lead, I, I'm the one who helps to meet Jesus. I get her to pray, evangelical. She accepts the Lord. Then I'm going to explain to her about the spirit realm. This is, this is going to be profound and, and humbling for me. I go, Annabelle, there is a spirit realm. You have to know that the devil, it will, there is a real devil an intelligent evil in the universe. She goes, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all about that. I go, no, honey, you don't. She goes, look, let me tell you something. She goes, I lived on benefit street in Providence, Rhode Island. And I had an apartment. She told me where the apartment was. She said it used to be a hospital. So I had the sky lab. I had the dome and the, I go, yeah, that building goes very expensive. Right. I go, yeah. She goes, well, I was a Rhode Island school of design student and I was at college. My roommate, Nikki was a Jamaican witch. She told me that we were going to put a spell on Sid Blazer, the Jewish landlord, and he would not collect rent because mm. we'd bind his mind. And she said, so we put a spell on Sid. And you know what? For a year and a half, he never collected rent because he forgot to collect it. And we live rent free. What? So I, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> I go, 
what in the world? I go, well, how, wow. how, 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 how did, what happened? She said, well, I felt bad about it, you know, because I raised with the Catholic <laughs> religion. So I went and told Sid, Sid, I feel bad. We put a spell on you and you oh, never man. collected rent. And Sid said, that's impossible. She said, the next thing I know, there's a knock on the door. He's got a little book. He goes, you owe me a lot of money. You owe me. And she goes, I know, Sid, I know. I'm the one who told you, remember? <laughs> so I'm looking, I'm looking at her going, that is wild. That's awesome. I, I go, you know what? I guess I don't really need to. She lived in a house which was 250, 240, uh, was, uh, 200 years old. William Penn, his, they had built it for William, a William Penn generation. So it was in Fairless wow. Hills, Fairless Hills, Levittown, Pennsylvania. So I'm, I'm visiting her house, the big house there, Dr. Naples had. It was empty because he moved out and she was going to, she was responsible to help sell it. And when I was dating her, I lead her to Jesus and I'm talking to her and she's talking about Nikki and this, you know, I'm bound the mind of a landlord. I'm thinking this girl actually is further advanced down the road than most Pentecostals and some of this stuff. And I, I show up at the house and I hear the door slam on the third floor. I said, uh, who's here? She goes, them. I go, who's them? Oh. She goes, the spirits. Oh. She goes, they don't like you and they don't like Jesus. Now that I'm a Christian, I have nothing but problems. I go, whoa, 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 wait a second. Whoa. What do you mean them? She goes, wow. the spirits don't like you and they don't like this Jesus thing. Ooh. And I heard the door slam again. I go, are you telling me Wow, doors are slamming because the spirit, she goes, that's what I said. And so the house is like 200, 200 years and old. She wouldn't make something up like that. She doesn't no, seem no, like no, someone no. that would make that up. Lucas, she's not a histrionic it, person. She doesn't do that. No, she's a, she's a college graduate doctor's daughter. I mean, she's an educated girl. So she goes, look, she goes, this is like, you know, like with Nikki and that stuff. It's a spiritual thing. I go, I know, I know it's spiritual. Hmm. So, um, she, wow. uh, so, so she told me, she said, my grandmother said there were two spirits in the house and, uh, she, she, uh, she knew there were two spirits. She said, so we were always aware that there were spirits in the house. It's an old house. And, uh, she described to me what they look like. Oh, and wow. I couldn't see him. I couldn't see him. She said, one of them is kind of weird looking like a pyramid, like looking thing with a small head. The other one is like an old, old guy with like an Abraham Lincoln hat or something. She goes, that's what my grandmother told me. Her grandmother, Gertrude, who was lived there. I said, this is too freaky. So I, oh my goodness, I call one man. I knew who was a pastor of mine in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Victor. And I asked Pastor Victor to come up and visit Annabelle because I, I wanted his assessment of, of exercising the house because I don't know anything about this stuff, but it looks like there's a spirit in the house. And this is listen to this. This is all very, so far, this is very, this is an interesting argument. I can't see it, but I'm hearing doors and things slamming. So he shows up, he op she opens the door. He stands there and Lucas, he freezes. He says, I don't know if I'm coming in. And she goes, oh, do you see him? Now, mind you, I haven't talked to him yet about what she told me. I just said, we need like to come up and help us out. He said, yeah. She goes, oh yeah. Well, what do they look like? So she's testing him because she doesn't, you know, she's a cynic. Wow. She doesn't know if this guy's for real. <laughs> she never met him before. He goes, well, one of them looks like, you know, he's like a Christmas tree shaped kind of guy with a small head. The other one looks like an Abe Lincoln. She goes, yep, that's them. I'm turning around looking what, what year, could, what year was this? This would have been like in the 1980s. Okay. So he had 
a gift of discerning of spirits. He could see. I don't have that. She didn't see them, but she had a grandmother describe what they look like. And so I was blown away. Wow. And so I, I, at that point, you know, you have experiences like that. And I was, I was working in the oil company, corporate headquarters. I was doing marketing campaigns. I'm going, man, this spirit realm thing is freaky real. So um, we, had, we, we ended up, uh, I ended up putting the Bible on and playing it 24 hours a day on the house. Alexander Scurby oh. on a tape recorder. I played the Bible. I, I told him, I said, you're, I'm going to torture you until you stop manifesting. <laughs> and, and I did. We, they got quiet after 24 hours a day of Alexander Scurby's New Testament. And uh, <laughs> that's awesome. These are strange stories, people. But all I can tell you is that's is our experience. Wow. That's a great can, note to end on, I guess. <laughs> well, well, yeah. well, you can you can edit that part out and send it to the to the desperate. We'll let we'll let <laughs> people chew on that. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for joining us, and let's have uh, Annabelle come on. And um, what was the other thing? There was another thing. Uh, you said that there were some things about rest and digest and messaging oh, well, 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 and, and stuff. Well, we'll, we'll chase that down another time if you want. Well, yeah, because she's totally in. I mean, she's she's on your side. She's telling me the yeah. nervous system and that it's, you know, that the energy that you got sure. in your body and that you have to and that you could be low energy and you're not assimilating the cellular, uh, you know, food. You're not even digesting properly because of the stress and yeah, anxiety. That's right. Blocking that's right. And, that's a real big issue. I, I have a note here that I'm supposed to tell you before uh, we'd like to get uh, Mercedes on at some point too, because I've met Mercedes and I've had dinner with her and uh, we've hung out and she's great. And so if she wants to come she's on brilliant. anytime, we're yeah, open, she, she's, open door. She's the so. business brains and the spiritual. She's married to Larry, who's, who's yeah, a publicist yeah. for destiny image. So she has an interesting world where she does the political with me and he does all the revival and the authors. So <laughs> that's great. Well, thank God you, Lance. You. Uh, say hi to everybody, and we'll uh, catch you on the flip side. Thank you, my God friend.